Hi, welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. And I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. Together we interview leading authorities, we answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information that we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember that the materials and the content on this podcast are intended as general information and they're for entertainment purposes only. They're not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Now sit back, grab your favourite beverage or do your thing and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. It's Marika Hart here, here with my co-host, Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. Good morning, afternoon. Morning, Anthony. <laughs> How are you? Good, thank you. It's going, it's, it's a beautiful day today. Oh, well, that's a nice change in the middle of winter, isn't it? Um, it and is. a massive welcome to our guest, Sally Sorrell, who is joining us all the way from Florida, not a native um, Floridian. <laughs> What's the word for someone who lives in Florida? Floridian, you did great. Is that right? I just thought I made that up. No, you you did great. I'm <laughs> Floridian right. by way of COVID right now. She's she's bunkering down in Florida, uh, spending time with family there because, uh, well, New York is your is your native state, right? But probably not, not the Jersey. best place to be right now. Right. My practice is in New York. My house is in New Jersey, and they don't want us back. They said, stay down in Florida. They did, yes. Look, the reason we, uh, we really wanted to get Sally on the podcast today is because of her expertise in endometriosis. Um, and Anthony, Anthony and I have, um, we've talked about having someone on the show to talk about endo because it's such a hugely, hugely important topic. Um, it's obviously something that is becoming, thankfully, finally, more to the forefront of people's minds and we're learning more and more all the time. There's still, my goodness, so much more to know. Um, but we want to help spread the word about endometriosis so that people who are having symptoms know what to look out for, how to get help and this kind of stuff. So who better to have on, on the podcast than someone who actually runs a massive summit on the topic. Um, but I'll just, I'll read a little blurb about, about Sally. So Sally, she had, um, has endometriosis and had 23 years of misdiagnoses um, before finally learning more about um, endo and some of the conditions associated with it. And she's a practicing pelvic health, pelvic floor PT. We say, do you still say pelvic health PT or women's health PT? What's the kind of um, Well, we say pelvic health. We can't say women's health any, well, we don't say women's health anymore because mm. we want to be more inclusive. So we say Excellent. pelvic health. Excellent. I love that. So she's a pelvic health PT. She specializes in endometriosis and subsequently occult hernia. Um, and she's gone on to found the Endometriosis Summit, which is the largest patient and practitioner gathering for endo in the United States. And she does that with Dr. Andrea Vidali. Um, she's also the driving force. Are you the driving force behind I Care Better or is that Dr. Vidali? Uh, no, I'm part of the advisory board. Um, and, uh, it is a excision vetting system. That's very new to the market. Tell us more. Uh, so we want, well, as we go on today, we will learn that the gold standard of care for endometriosis should be excision. And especially in the U S but worldwide, it is very hard to locate an excisionist and also it's very hard for their skills to be 
quantified and qualified. So right now, anyone can hang a sign out their door and say that they do excision. But it, the best way to fight endometriosis is to do one clean, complete excision of the disease. So we want, and, and if you have recur, recurrence is rare, we can keep talking about that, but um, then you'll go back. But we wanted to build a directory where you can um, have, find an excisionist, it's double blinded on each side. So the entrance doesn't know who is reviewing him and the reviewer doesn't know who they're reviewing. So, you know, in endometriosis, there's lots of politics. So this way, the skills are the proof in the pudding. You have the skills, then you can be vetted. If you don't have the skills, it really doesn't matter if we like you or not, because we don't know, right? And um, our goal is to not only, um, Band all the excisions together. We have commitments from multiple continents. We have doctors in Australia who are certainly interested in, in joining our program, but or in joining I Care Better's program. I'm just like a little teeny piece of the puzzle, but we also have um, a place where now we can prove once and for all that excision works. That was That's my normal. COVID experiment. Not. Yes. I did not know that was going on. That's so interesting. And we'll definitely, yeah. we'll definitely come back to that because I think that's really interesting. Um, so Sally, you know, are we, we sort of very briefly touched about it, touched on this topic before um, we pressed record, but um, I did have a couple of stats that I just wanted to throw in for the Aussie audience because I think um, people sort of think, why are we talking about endo? Why is it a big deal? Um, statistically in Australia, it's around one in 10. Is that pretty similar in America? That is similar here as well. And, and in terms of lost revenue, so to the Australian system, healthcare costs, loss of productivity, loss of earnings, um, loss of time away from family, friends, sport, all those things that, you know, uh, contribute to women's quality of life. It's estimated $7.7 billion a year is what endometriosis, endometriosis costs us in Australia alone. Um, so it's it's one of those topics that's finally getting a lot of attention. Um, we had a huge review in Australia, I think 2017, was it, Anthony, when they brought out the big endometriosis, um, big review paper, and they're committed to putting a lot of more funding towards research and services. Oh, yes. Um, endometriosis Australia, which is a tremendous um, organization in Australia, um, I remember them posting all about that. So the mm. legislative legislators in Australia actually committed to donating a certain amount of money towards research, I believe. Yeah. 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 I think that was 2017. So it's, so it's a, it's, so it's a really, really important topic. Um, but let's like, if we can strip it right back to the basics, Sally. So for someone who's never heard about endometriosis and doesn't know what an endometrium is, could you just tell us a little bit about the anatomy and about like, what is endometriosis? Well, let's just start right there with that, Marika, because endometriosis and the endometrium actually have nothing to do with each other. So endometriosis, the endometrium is the tissue that lines the uterus, but endometriosis is when tissue similar to, but not the same as the lining of the uterus is found elsewhere in the pelvis and in the body. It could be found in the diaphragm. It could be found on the liver, in the lung, in the tubes, all along the pelvis, your ligaments, everywhere. So it's very important that we make that difference, that endometriosis and endometrium are different because 
hysterectomy actually doesn't do anything for endometriosis, right? Hysterectomy simply takes that uterus out of your body. But if endometriosis is not endometrium, which it is not, and it's a disease that makes its own um, estrogen and progesterone at the lesions um, of the disease, removing the um, uterus isn't going to do anything. So this all goes back to um, the beginnings of endometriosis when this guy, Samson, was operating, not operating, he was doing um, pathology, basically exploration on cadavers. And there were some women there and they had died of being hysterical. And so when he opened them up, he saw all this like black goo. Sometimes he saw like maybe he saw some red goo in their pelvis. And he not only decided this was what made them hysterical, but he looked and the only thing he could find was a hole coming out of the tube, which is a normal anatomical phenomenon. Everybody has that hole. And he said, well, their blood from their periods back flowed through the tube and that called, caused this. So we'll call it endometriosis. Except that endometriosis, everybody it, um, has backflow of menstrual blood through the tube, but only one in 10 have endometriosis. Plus there are reports in the literature of people who are born without uteruses that still have endometriosis. Plus you can put somebody on a drug that stops their period and they still have endometriosis. So endometriosis is not from retrograde menstruation. We do believe it's laid down when you're in uteros and it becomes an inflammatory condition that um, makes its own hormones. So, you know, that distinction that treating the uterus or removing the uterus or putting you on birth control or giving you something worse, I don't know what they have there in Australia and the US. We have um, Lupron, which has horrendous side effects. We have Orlissa which um, induces menopause and young, young women who are still developing their bone, it becomes such an issue. And then they're not even treating the cause of the disease. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. That's really, really interesting. And um, I remember trying to learn more about the, uh, sorry, the different um, theories about endometriosis. And there seems to be, there's kind of like a, flu, a few, the last I checked, there was a few sort of ideas floating around as to what they thought it was but there didn't seem to be much of a clear idea as to um what is actually happening and why women get it can you give us any more thoughts about that do you think it's more that there's some kind of predetermined genetic or genetic predisposition towards some kind of inflammatory process is that sort of what we're thinking or well we sort of have a big messy soup of um inadequate research and development and and, and endometriosis and we just haven't found the true cause. Dr. David Redwine and, um, has a theory. He was one of the founder, not found, founding fathers, I would say, of true endometriosis surgery. will say that it's laid down when you're in utero and then um, it becomes an inflammatory and hormonal reaction as you develop more. There are other theories that there's um, stem cell, that there's genes involved, um, but it's important to realize that where, wherever it comes from, endometriosis is a, a disease of lesions, 
Um, and those lesions themselves not only make their own estrogen, they do make their own progesterone. In the clinic that I mainly work in, they do do pathology and they do find on that pathology that there's progesterone in those lesions as well. It is not driven by your period. And um, on top of which, if you stick it under a microscope, it develops over time its own nerve supply and anastomosis to blood supply as well. So it's kind of a nasty little piece of something um, that generates pain problems, inflammation, infertility, and lots of issues for the vessel that it's living in. And it's made worse by um, everybody wants to throw maybe some birth control at it, but birth control isn't going to modulate a lesion. It's only going to modulate the period. You know, all of this stuff is is fascinating. And, and um, you know, I remember being taught, um, you know, about birth control, trying to help with the problems, um, other things like, you know, have a baby as soon as possible to help the endometriosis. Um, and, and, you know, the, the lesion thing and, and hearing from you and um, speaking with you, uh, you know, uh, even as far as I think you said the diaphragm, they found lesions all right. the way up to the diaphragm. So all throughout the abdominal cavity. Um, well, and lung and cardiac and pericardium. All right. Um, there are reports in the literature in the brain, very few cases. The only organ wow. in the body that has not been shown to have endometriosis is the spleen. Okay. So, and this is all in the literature. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And okay. Because my next question was like, can you get these lesions anywhere else in the body? Like um, joints, muscles, nerves, because we're physios, you know, like we think joints, muscles, nerves, um, you know, the spine, H have they found it in the periphery at all or, or skin even? So skin endometriosis is a thing, mm -hmm. and it typically is there what's called itrogenic transfer. So it's typically dragged there. I happen to have had some skin endometriosis, and it was dragged there by a dirty surgical tool. It typically happens that way. Um, C-section scars is a very common place for people to have skin endometriosis um, because you know, they're opening you up. Actually, when they open you up for a, a C-section, the organs are so distorted from the shape of the baby and everything, they couldn't see endometriosis if they tried, and then endometriosis gets trapped in the scar. Uh, so yes, that happens. Abdominal wall endometriosis, I've seen it both ways. I've seen it where it's primary, and it was something that started there. I've seen endometriomas of the abdominal wall um that you can actually see from the outside of somebody and like when you poke them they get that chocolate cyst bleeding inside and i've seen it secondary where it's spread there and i've seen umbilical endometriosis the same way the cardiac endometriosis actually that i saw most recently was a doctor um who said she had some pain and she pointed in the waiting room and then the doctor was like, oh, I better, you know, they went to, they got a thoracic team. They're going to have to look at the thoracic wall. And when they got in there, they saw it on the pericardium. So it, it's, it's a very tricky beast. The symptoms don't always 
match the severity. So in the United States, they have um, what's known as ASRM classification, and it's staging, stage one, stage two, stage, but staging has no bearing on pain. Um, so you could have very little disease and have so much pain, you have no quality of life, um, or you could have tons and tons of disease and not have any pain at all. And there's not a lot of good research on on why that happens. You could have totally silent endometriosis. We work in preventing miscarriage. It's, a, it's an offshoot of reproductive immunology. And by looking at somebody's immunological factors, sometimes you can pick out that they have endometriosis and they're like, I don't even have cramps. And yet if you sent them to surgery, because we know that imaging is not helpful with endometriosis, you're in there doing bowel sections. Yeah, it's a very um, tricky beast. And, and that sort of leads nicely onto the, um, the symptoms that people experience with endo, because it sounds like obviously it, it can affect all these different organs. And like Anthony said earlier, you know, a lot of people think it's just all about the, it's all about the painful periods and it's all about the cramps and, or heavy bleeding. But because of that infiltration into all these other organs, um, there's a lot of other symptoms and obviously pain of different organs. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the more um, common features that patients will present to you with? The common features I see with endometriosis definitely are cramps and painful period, but also I see a lot of IBS-like symptoms. And so I get tons of people who come to me and they've been self-treating their stomach aches for years and years. I'm not going to eat this. Um, I've avoided this. I have to take just this one probiotic. I have to drink hot water in the morning or I can't go to the bathroom. These, I see this a lot. And then you have to ask questions further, like, do you have back pain? Do you have pain with sex? But pain with sex that's not a penetration, pain with sex that's further back. Because um, endometriosis loves the rectovaginal septum and the rectovaginal septum is hit if something fully penetrates, right? Do you have some leg pain? We frequently see leg pain with endometriosis because it loves to um, create an inflammatory cycle around the legs, around the nerves that go to the leg. Do you have tailbone pain? Are you, do you have trouble when you um, sit down on the toilet? Do you feel like you can pee multiple times an hour? Like These are the symptoms that I also see. But in my practice, I also see, do you have rib pain? Do you, because I, for some reason, I see a lot of diaphragmatic and I mean, I only see endometriosis and hernia. So I see more than the average person, but do you have, uh, are you, are you leaking for no reason? Are you that person who is always peeing through the middle of the night and you've been to every pelvic PT that's out there and they've given you all these exercises and they're not helping? Are you, um, are you uh, having issues with fertility? Have you, so I had somebody who was a PT actually uh, write me in the middle of the night in pain. And I said, well, have you ever gotten pregnant? And she said, I had unprotected sex with my husband for 14 years. It's not unexplained infertility if we can add up all these other things that go with it. Do you have like neck pain and reflux because the endometriosis that's on your diaphragm or in your lung is referring pain there? Yeah. Do you get nosebleeds with your periods? You know, and so um, we see that a lot with the lung and the diaphragm symptoms too. And then, you know, do you have 
Uh, symptoms at ovulation. Do you are do your do your bowel problems get worse at ovulation and worse during your period? You know all these things. We're taught so much to normalize our pain, right? So from the time we're little teenagers, and I think culture is beginning to change now. But I was a teenager who was taking not one Advil or two Advil. That's ibuprofen here in the United States. I was actually spilling out half the bottle and swallowing it in the middle of the night so I could get up at 5 a.m. and be at swim practice on time when I was in high school. So, like, are, are we taught to be warriors and normalize our pain? And then in the U.S., at least, I would love to hear what the experience is like in Australia. But And then we go to the doctor, and they sort of pat you on the back that periods hurt, and that's how it is for the women in your family. That's how it is for the people that you, you know, that's it. And so it's a, it's a whole thing that needs to, to change in order for us to accept that maybe some of these symptoms are coming from endometriosis. I was going to say, I, I think there's still a bit of that culture here. Wouldn't you agree, Anthony? I mean, it's... Yeah. There, there are some amazing public health PTs, actually, Sally, who are, um, I know it started in South Australia, but they're actually going into all the high schools and educating the girls. So telling the 12, 13, 14 year old girls all about their periods, all about their body, all about sex um, and what is sort of quote unquote normal um, and when things, you know, should be investigated further. So trying to get that education to the younger generation and so, hopefully that's going to drive change through the medical system because if, you know, really kind of that, that, that sort of pressure from the public to say, we no, we expect more. We know more. So right. we expect more. For years and years and years, um, probably the preeminent uh, high school and middle school endometriosis education program is the ME program by Endometriosis New Zealand, Menstrual Health and Endometriosis. And so... It's the, I almost want to say I could be wrong because I haven't um, spoken to her recently, but it's the majority of high schools and middle schools in all of New Zealand. So in the United States, we have similar programs. Uh, in fact, we gave at the Endometriosis Summit um, access to all the kits. Endowhat.org makes a nurse's kit to send out to any nurse that you know and they get the film about endometriosis and endometriosis education to hang in their office. Nurses, it was nursesnoendo.com and then COVID hit. I don't know if that's still there, but it's endowhat.org. It, it's so important. Um, I, you know, I was also taught that endometriosis has an average diagnosis time of eight years um, from the onset of symptoms. All of these symptoms are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you see these symptoms in a range of ages. Um, and from what I understand now, the, the sooner that you, you get on top of things, um, the better. And we've already started with, uh, you know, mentioning excision. When do, when do girls, I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's young females, uh, when do symptoms really start appearing if the theory is that it's it's late in utero, um, is there anything in young childhood that they, they think about? Um, like commonly, I'm guessing the onset of uh, their period, uh, the onset of menstruation is often when you can start telling things maybe. I, to be honest, I'm the dumb guy in the room. Just, uh, you so, know, I hope you get the question. 
There is some reports in the literature about uh, appendicitis in young women who then, got, like young women, six, seven, eight years old, I think in the literature, um, the, ca the cases are nine years old, but there is some reported cases that like mysterious onset of appendicitis in young women is a sign of that they will have endometriosis. Um, and there was a researcher, I'm not the most, I don't do him justice. The, um, Dr. Ronald Bott did a lot of studying on endometriosis in fetus. Um, and his research is out there. But what we find is that um, people with very bad bowel symptoms and um, extensive endometriosis, they might have been the kid that was like always had a stomach ache or had like maybe they had some food allergies, maybe that they had something sort of inflammatory in their youth. Not always, but I do see that. Um, I actually see it a lot in like 35 year olds who are trying to get pregnant and going through IVF and don't realize they have endometriosis, but they love to say, oh, my stomach's been bad since I was nine. So I also see a little bit um, in people who menstruate early have a higher incidence of endometriosis. And I think that's in the literature as well. But what we teach to teens and parents of teens and is that if you think something's wrong, it probably is. Um, because And your local GYN and your local GP probably won't hear you, listen to you, or honor what you're saying. And that you may need to access crowdsourced information and you may need to access um, something like the Endometriosis Summit or Nancy's Nook on Facebook or now we hope um, I care better, um, but that in order to get really good care. Not every teen needs somebody to rush in and do surgery. We know that surgery is the only way to diagnose. There is nothing on, if you have a cyst that's an endometrioma or an endometriosis cyst on your ovary, that could be seen by ultrasound, but there's Otherwise, nothing about ultrasound that can rule in or rule out endometriosis. And the same goes for MRI. So I had 14 negative MRIs. And then in, a, in the course of a two-year period, the last year of me building up to diagnosis when I was really miserable, and then I had a six-and-a-half-hour surgery. While the radiologist sat there and went, but there was nothing on the MRI. So endometriosis does not always show. Um, what we encourage, people have to take their disc directly to the specialist. If the specialist is only reading the report, they're not getting the full picture of what's going on. They have to put your, their eyes on your pelvis. So, you know, not every teen do you need to run in and do surgery. Birth control modulates symptoms for some people, but you have to teach them this is modulating symptoms this is not treating the disease because the choice to do something is up to the patient, the person who's having the symptoms. It's not up to the doctor to withhold um, treatments that are available, which in the United States is often what happens. Thank you so much, Sally. So, you know, just sort of in summary with that, the only real definitive diagnosis will usually be done under um, scope. Um, but occasionally you can see assist on ultrasound or you might be lucky and get something on another scan like an MRI. 
but you don't necessarily have to rush in and do and, and do a, a surgical um, intervention. Um, just interestingly, on, on the sort of the contraceptive pill, because, you know, obviously that's a bit controversial in, in teenagers. Um, and I, you know, I sort of hear different opinions on that. There's sort of the, the one side of the argument that says, well, look, you know, if it helps modulate, like help these kids get through life, help um, reduce their pain, which, you know, we know from the research that if, if, if the pain is not well managed, they're far more likely to go on to have uh, chronic pain. Um, and it really sort of winds up that central nervous system and increases um, sensitization. So we really, we don't want to leave these girls hanging in the, hanging in the wind and dealing with chronic pain. And then there's that other side where people are saying, well, look, we don't want um, in those early years, kids to go on um, oral contraceptive pill too young because in that early stages, their body is still learning how to produce the hormones and setting up that regulatory system um, where they're you know producing too much, producing too little, and then it helps helps their body learn how to adjust that. Um, do you, what are the sort of current thoughts on on that? Well, first of all, in the U.S., people often don't bother to have that conversation with their child because um, the doctors just tell them it's fine to go on birth control pills. So that's a conversation that almost never happens in the US that it's not, there are issues, um, perhaps issues with development and there are, um, you know, sometimes you don't wanna go on too young. And let's be real, if you choose to have birth control when you're sexually active, then birth control makes sense for that. That's what it's designed for. But for endometriosis, if somebody is giving it to your child to or to yourself to say, here, I'll make your problems go away, I think it's just important for the person to educate themselves and realize it's only covering up or masking the disease. So the presence of that disease may decrease um, ovarian reserve, just the presence of disease. So that's what happens is that, uh, and I'm working with somebody now, and she went on the pill at 14 because she had horrible cramps. Nobody mentioned the word endometriosis, except for that she knows me, right? It's a friend. And then when she came off the pill at 35 to go and get pregnant, she had to go directly into IVF because she had not an ounce of ovarian reserve left because the um, endometriosis is simply degrading her ovaries over time and it degrades your ovaries faster than if you don't have endometriosis. What the, the other thing, and it's, it's, um, it's a little technical, so just hang on for the ride. But we know with endometriosis, there's research that demonstrates that people who have endometriosis, the receptor site sensitivity for progesterone is downregulated or turned off a little bit. And so many doctors respond to this by throwing more progesterone into the system. And I believe in Australia, you have the Zane. We don't have it in the United States. So that's a progesterone. And they're throwing all this progesterone into, this, into the system in the hopes that this down-regulated receptor site will have extra to grab. And then that will help them. Except that a down-regulated receptor is a down-regulated receptor and throwing more at it may not actually do anything. It may just create more extra in the matrix for to sit there, right? So that may impact the person. The other thing is we know from doctors like John DeLumba and Dr. Andrea Vidali who do pathology on the lesions themselves, 
plenty of people have estrogen, have progesterone sensitive endometriosis. So throwing more progesterone at the person is not always the answer. So sometimes with people with endometriosis, it's a matter of which pill and what works and what doesn't work. And, and that's an okay choice. But if somebody chooses to have surgery, they need to choose the surgery that will remove the disease at its roots and not just burn off the top of the disease. So in the US, that's a big thing because excision is not the gold standard. Um, and so excision removes the disease off at its roots. Ablation burns the disease and leaves, it burns the surface and anything below the surface is left there. So it's like burning off the top of a melanoma and leaving the rest of the cancer that's there, even though endometriosis is not cancer. Or it, did you want somebody to fully take it out at its margins? That's like the difference. I've been told, and there's a lot of reasons why that has happened in the, in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, and that's why we need to really um, qualify and quantify what excision is. Okay. So excision, excision is taking it out at the root. So I'm guessing like, because it is a certain type of tissue and it sits inside other tissue, trying to get clear margins all the way around of the tissue that's supposed to be there and not the endometrial-like tissue. Um, Bingo. I don't know. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, and ablation is... There's lots of ways to do it, Anthony. You could um, you could use a laser. You could use a cold scissors. You could. The point is the skill of the surgeon trying to do it, not the tool that they're using. Right now, I know because we've spoken a few times uh, before, um, including in person, which was fascinating. By the way, your passion is just palpable. I love it. Um, your, uh, you know, you've described that the, the lesions, and you've alluded to them here, uh, you know, you've mentioned red, sometimes black, but, uh, you know, in the very young, for example, might it be the same color? Like, is it hard to tell what's a, what's a piece of endometriosis versus the normal tissue around it? Uh, the color changes that go through, when is a good time to go get excision? Um, and you've already discussed that it may be sitting in places where, yeah, you've got to go do something about this. And then there's other things. It's like, yeah, you know, waiting a year or two isn't going to be that big a deal. Usually, um, what, what, uh, yeah, what does it look like inside? And so then, can, you know, going to get all of it, you know? It could look clear, it could look um, blueberry, it could look, they also say raspberry, it could be brown, it could be, you know, it could be black. Um, and also if you've had ablation, you could have S-char in there, which looks like as if you've roasted a red pepper, you know, the black part on the red pepper. So there's all sorts of different appearances to endometriosis. and when doctors are, first of all, when doctors are in medical school, in you, your viewers have now gotten more endometriosis education than doctors who go to medical school in the United States get, right? So I see Marika's got her like this, you know, but that is true, I'm not making that up. At most they get, 
15, 20 minutes of education, which includes staging, which we already said staging doesn't matter, and includes a discussion on retrograde menstruation, which we already said retrograde menstruation doesn't cause endometriosis. So it's very important that when you think you may have endometriosis or you think you're ready for an excision, that you go to a specialist that can recognize all those different lesions. Because if somebody's delivering babies all night and props to the OBs that do that, but if somebody's doing prolapse surgery and they're doing this and they're doing that, they may not be specialized enough to, to recognize anything. So you asked me before, do you see it um, in the spine, in the spinal nerves? I've seen it, I have seen it on the spine once, so I don't deny that it's there, but I have seen it sciatic endometriosis, I have ilioinguinal endometriosis, you've seen, um, oddly, when we were in person, you've seen my nerves, you see, so you can get endometriosis wrapped all around that, and you don't want the local gynecologist taking a shot at how to get it off your pudendal nerve. You know, and so it becomes very important that specialist that you choose. And I believe it also becomes very important the physical therapist that you choose because the physical therapist has to know how to work with or um, the trainer that you're going to use to rehab your body afterwards has to understand how those nerves work that were operated on, right? Just not to get too political here for a second, Sally, but if there was a condition that crippled men this much and led to infertility, chronic pain, um, bowel problems, maybe, digestive problems. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so all of the issues that you talk about, do you think there'd be more studying in medical school? Do you think there'd be more right. research allocation money? So there's a fantastic meme <laughs> that goes around by Nancy Peterson. If anybody doesn't know Nancy Peterson of Nancy's Nook for endometriosis, she was the nurse who founded most of the original endometriosis centers in the United States, and she's fantastic. It's her whole life. But she has a meme that says, if men had peritoneal quality pain on their balls or that bother them during sex, endometriosis would be cured. So, you know, I think in the United States, and, and this is its own podcast probably, but one of the issues is that the standard of care set by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology really does not include modern concepts in endometriosis. It does not include excision surgery. And it doesn't include any way in which the patient isn't going to be minimized for eight to 10 years before they get actual care. So they're still saying the definitive treatment for endometriosis is hysterectomy. And it isn't. And there, so the American College of Gynecology also says birth control, then maybe you could have surgery. And it says any surgery. So like, really, you could have a doctor who goes in there, doesn't recognize anything, and tells you you don't have endometriosis. I see that once a week. And these people always have endometriosis. It doesn't recognize that IC comes with endometriosis, painful bladder syndrome. It doesn't recognize that um, people get central nervous system upregulation, that people may have dietary, it doesn't recognize any of the issues in endometriosis that we all know, because we've arrived there without the support, support of the governing body. So that that's where, you know, a huge problem in endometriosis right now. Yeah, that is, that is massive. Um, and, you know, the work that you're doing with the organizers, organizations that you're with in the summit, it's fantastic. Um, 
would love to hear more about um, some of the things that we can do as health and fitness professionals, you know, physical therapists, even trainers, coaches, uh, things that we can do and recognize. And to kick it off, I thought I'd circle back to something interesting that you said, which is that you can get you can get in your C-section scar uh, some endometrial tissue because it's hard to see it. And so, you know, um, like just because of the way that surgical instruments are and pulling the baby out, um, I'm guessing you can get like transference of the tissue left in the skin. Um, like, I mean, that's still mind-blowing for me. Uh, what endometriotic tissue in the C-section scar is actually not that unusual. Really? Um, I see at least 10 cases of that a year, if not more. And on my work online, I see it all the time. Um, I do a lot of work in hernia, so we always have to, if there is a lump, which most hernia does not have a lump in um, pelvises that are female, but the, um, you know, we always have to decide, is that a wad of endometriosis or just a wad of intraperitoneal fat? So, you know, I think when you start, and I had a great um, time talking to Brianna Battles about the same thing. I think you should recognize that the clients that you work with may have endometriosis and they may not understand that their symptoms are endometriosis. You know, do they have irretractable back pain while they're trying to jump rope or jump on and off boxes? And then if you ask them, do you also get a lot of stomach aches? Do you have heavy periods? They may not know that it all goes together right? They may not know the fact that they can't make it through class without going to the bathroom more than once may be something else. So I think that's where you start. I mean, also like uh, people have great, in the past in the United States, when you were able to go to a trainer, people have great relationships with their trainer, very close relationships with their pelvic physical therapist. Are you, you know, do, do they realize that they haven't been getting pregnant because maybe of their back pain and not because their back pain prevents them from sex, but because it's a whole sequela of disease. So that's where I would start. If somebody has C-section scar endometriosis, all your little mobilizations and your scar tissues, which we can talk about whether or not they are um, effective anyway, it's not going to be helpful because you're talking about nodular disease that hurts it's never going to like reintegrate into a scar that softens you know um and i think that that's something to, that's super important but what will help them is mobilizing the tissue around it so that they can and I usually use, I like to use exercise to mobilize around it. So does it mean doing a little bit more extension? Does it mean teaching them to hold the scar so they can do um, a flexion rotation so that the tissue around the scar can open a little bit more? Um, and so then if they're really a Pilates junkie, then maybe once they've you know gotten that different input there, then they can go back to their Pilates but also just to have them recognize that that's something that maybe needs treating. Um, you know, if they uh, like to do, again, the, the Pilates or bar, we have a lot of bar here in the United States and, and we have bars and then we have B-A-R-R-E. <clears throat> so it depends what their fa fancy is. 
But right, it depends whether they really like to go to the bar or go to the bar. But is there a way to teach them how to use their pelvis so that they're not their if their uteral sacral ligaments aren't as mobile because of endometriosis? Is there they may be somebody who can't be in the full tuck. They may be somebody you have to work with, okay. You can't, this is your full talk now, back out of it. See, you know, and then the, you have to find what works for them. That's what I think. And I did. I'm going to give a huge shout out. I was always a person, well, maybe you should walk or do yoga or go swimming, right? Except I never once in my life walked, did yoga or went swimming once I started with pelvic pain. I did teach yoga for a while. And so there, I learned in Anthony's class. I should stop saying that to patients. First of all, I'm not saying it to myself, and I've been through seven endometriosis surgeries, but also there's no research that demonstrates that you have to walk, do yoga, or go swimming. So you have to meet these patients where they are, and sometimes, like, I have patients that love the spinning. Spinning is horrendous on that pelvic floor. We all know it. So what can I teach a patient, how can I work with them one-on-one -on -one to make spinning more comfortable? And I've actually, um, during COVID and in the telemedicine, in the coaching and the telemedicine, we've had them craft all sorts of different things to put on the bike seats, right? Because it's gonna protect them and that helps them. Today I have someone and she has ilioinguinal compression, that's groin nerves, right? But she wants to go to that online bar class so how can we support her with the ball? How can we teach her not to be completely turned out, but not completely in parallel? What can we ask her to target when she's working, but also I do end those phone calls or if I was seeing somebody live by saying, you know, you should understand that this is something that may need to be treated one day. Because it is a choice to have that treatment, but we can't, pretend as physical therapists, we can fix a surgical disease. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you for your kind words. Um, you know, it's, it's really, really um, important that we, we do that linking, like you said, so you know, being able to to ask about the pain that they have, and not just naturally assume that it's because of their joints or their they're whatever uh the pelvic floor dysfunction even like you you know you've mentioned the leaking and things um if if i was to create a screening form uh that i could use in my practice uh or a fitness professional could use uh if they if they started hearing things which didn't sound like it was part of the ordinary it, it wasn't like they rolled their ankle they have ankle pain um, number one, are there screening forms like that available? Number two, what would just be some of the questions that you would ask people? Uh, I wish I could say, yes, there are screening forms available. I'm sure there are. Maybe the endometriosis summit needs to develop one. Um, but uh, I think that, I know, that was a good idea. So I think that one of the things that I love about the screening form, and I, I have screening forms in my practice, but is that it opens the door. So I ask, do you have, and I don't work in orthopedics anymore, but I ask, do you have painful sex after the, even to the patient that's rolled their ankle, right? And it's a form, it's their choice if they, and then my next question is, does sex hurt at penetration or does it hurt 
further back. And I always, I make sure not to, I, I try to be as inclusive as possible. Um, and I very much switch to, um, does it hurt when something inserts further back? So, you know, we're as inclusive as possible. And so just by seeing that on the form, even if they leave it blank, they may answer that. They know you're open and you're an educated professional. And so you could have that conversation with them. Hey, did you know that could be endometriosis? I ask a lot of questions about groin and groin pain. And a lot of times people don't even know how to answer them, but they will say even six weeks into therapy, oh, by the way, or hey, when I ovulate, this happens to my groin. So the form is great. I would ask things like, does sex hurt? Um, do you have painful periods? Um, do you have stomach pain? Um, do you, and I always ask questions. Um, do you have uh, difficulty with urination? Are you a frequent urinator? Um, are you constipated? Do you have frequent diarrhea? I sort of start there because as you noticed, I'm a talker. But those are things you should be um, looking at. And then, you know, when you chat with your patients or your clients, I think it's okay to say like, you know, did, did you have, do you have trouble? If they're trying to get pregnant, I think it's okay to say, did you have trouble getting pregnant? I also have had a very long and difficult um, fertility journey. And no matter what they gave to me for IVF, I was never getting pregnant. But I think it's okay to also say to them, and how does that feel? Right? Patients with, and people with endometriosis haven't been heard. So you know, when somebody's like canceling their appointment on the fifth of every month, it's okay to say, do you have painful periods? And if they answer yes, it's okay to say, and how do you feel about that? Because opening that line to communication to somebody that's been gaslit and basically abused by the medical system, you're, they're going to trust you. And now you have some information to share with them. And that's where it's going to begin for them. Um, yeah, that's a really that's a really valid point there about the sort of gaslighting, and I think you know women feeling like their their concerns are, are minimised, ignored, um, yeah, brushed aside for a very long time, and 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 things. Yeah, it's it's astonishing the stories that you hear, really, isn't it? And it's heartbreaking. Um, and I think one of the that sort of leads nicely, Sally, into you know the consequences of having no diagnosis or having no um, treatment for endo what can be some of the consequences and not just in terms of like the physical side of things, but the sort of emotional, psychological, social, you know, um, employment, you know, what can be some of the impact on women of not getting a diagnosis and not getting appropriate treatment, you know, in a timely fashion? I think um, not getting diagnosis and not being heard, it forever puts you in a position where you feel like you don't matter sometimes even to yourself. And I, I, I say it as somebody who's been through it, but I, and I also say it as somebody who's been treated that way by doctors, but I hear it all the time that women have been told they're crazy um, or they start a sentence, you're going to think I'm nuts. I, I, they don't have, you don't have to self-deprecate in front of me. You're not nuts. And in any of our practices, you're not nuts. And you know that from working with chronic pain. But I think that over time, it diminishes your power as a person and everybody deserves to have that. And that's one of the issues like with the endometriosis. And, and I was surprised. It also makes people incredibly angry. 
So the endometriosis summit is a patient and practitioner town meeting. So it's a it's an open. We show no difference between doctor and patient. It's an open for everything. And I don't know why, but this year I was so surprised at the anger coming from the audience when we opened the mics. And so, and we did, we all came to a resolution on what we're supposed to, and we made it nice in the end. But I think teaching people that um, this system sucks right now, and we have to mobilize our voices to change it um, is very important and very powerful. But I make no, you know, that is the emotional side of things. But I want to tell your viewers, I have seen in the last year multiple people who lost kidneys. I saw a woman who had her bladder removed. I saw, um, I have seen somebody who's walked around for life with a bowel bag. I've seen, um, I've seen somebody, actually, we had a fantastic, we run lives on the endometriosis summit. Um, and she talked about how she had been in the ER three times, three different occasions with a lung collapse. And on each of the three occasions, they just offered her an Advil. Now that was a live about race and endometriosis. So, you know, obviously in the United States, everywhere in the world, I think there is some um, patient profiling going on. But you know, endometriosis, it's medical, it is not just a painful period. And the other thing is now I see people who are like, oh, I'm, mine isn't that. So I don't, everybody deserves treatment, whether you're in that realm or where you're, you know, getting bowel resection or you're in the realm where you have some cramps. Everybody deserves treatment. Yeah. It's, um, it's really sad to hear stuff like that, uh, going on still. Um, you know, with the physical side of things, so many of us, um, you know, you've given us such great information, this whole podcast, Sally, um, you know, for, for practitioners, for coaches, fitness professionals, uh, and for the public. Um, what are some of the things that we can do as physical therapists to help people with this persistent pain? They might have had it for years, decades. Um, what are some of the helpful things that we can do um, in a practical way to help uh, women dealing with endometriosis? I love when physical therapists ask me this because I think first it is to connect with whoever the person is um, and, and just say, hey, it's okay that you're going through this because nobody probably has said that to them. And to teach them that they're going to have to advocate for themselves because a lot of times um, the system is not going to advocate automatically for them. But the other thing is with once you have endometriosis, you know that chronic pain becomes recognized and upregulated by the brain in three to six months, depending on what literature you're looking at. And so eight to 10 years of endometriosis, you can already have that feedback loop going on. So we're great at treating that. We're way better at treating chronic pain, I feel, than narcotics. So all your central nervous system um, techniques from breathing, and I don't care. I mean, you don't have to be like some superstar diaphragmatic breather. You could sit in a room with the lights on or off, 
um, and a cell phone timer and breathe for three minutes and you're going to get great benefits. You don't have to have some big like to do. Oh, you know, I mean, those are good too, right? So we love your breathing. I have tried, I have a, actually a background in pediatrics. I've tried a lot of dry brushing to, ac to access the central nervous system. But what do most people feel good from doing? And that's like a low-grade cardiovascular something. Is that walking? I do like that is sometimes easiest. But some of my patients with really bad leg pain, they're not ready to walk. They may have to, we try to find something. Do they like yoga? Then they could find that. If they don't like that, then what is it that they like? It's actually like a lot of patients have had a great time because there's so many downloadable apps during COVID. They could try one thing one day, they could try country line dancing the next day, and then, but they could try the bar class and they could try yoga. You know, it's been a lot of fun, but to get that heart rate up, I always say, you know, if you can't do anything, start with eight to 10 minutes, right? I don't know what the literature says, right? I obviously would like the patient going between 30 and 45 minutes, but eight to 10 minutes, if you're in chronic pain, it's enough maybe to just break that cycle. Most, I do a lot of dietary, um, education because it is an inflammatory disease and someone should feel like they're empowered over their pain. I like um, all of the, uh, I actually, all my patients come home from any, any ER, like wherever they've been sent and they're being marginalized, they send them home with an incentive spirometer. I, I mean, I get it now with COVID, but I don't get it in general. So even breathing through something like that is a great place to start. Um, and I, I also find it very, very important if they have a history of using Orlissa or Lupron or any of these drugs that put them into um, induced menopause, they have to do weight-bearing exercise. You have to figure out how to get some weight being bared on, born bared on their bones because they have taken drugs that have stopped their bone development in the years of their lives where they're banking bone development. You know, and I also try to educate parents, like I have parents, I don't want my kid to have surgery. Like, I don't want your kid on this drug because I don't want them to be a 60 year old with hip fractures. So, and I, I learned this year, it's not just weight on your legs and it's also, you can lean into the wall and do wall push-ups. You can put your hands out and tap your shoulders um, while the other hand is against the wall and do the ABCs. It doesn't, it's, it's weight into all your bones. Yeah, that, that so uh, cardiovascular exercise, access the central nervous system, and we all know how to do that and do weight-bearing something. That's where I would start. Do I have great manual skills, which if I'm ever allowed to treat a human being live again, I would love to use? Yeah, I do. But that's not the only way to make progress. I also think it's not the only, like people with endometriosis have horrendous pelvic floor spasms typically. They're typically have tight pelvic floors. It doesn't mean the only way to treat them is to use a dilator or to stick your finger in there and lengthen their pelvic floor. There's lots of ways. 
And in fact, one of the best parts of COVID is I've spent my time teaching patients how to lengthen their pelvic floor without ever touching them. And for most of them, without them touching themselves. So because it's a whole body connection to the pelvic floor, brain to pelvis, it's not just pelvis. Now, I do plenty of pelvic floor work. I do plenty of manual work, but there are other ways to get at it as well. Yeah. Oh, well said, Sally. Uh, and I love what you're saying about the exercise side of things, because I think, um, you know, as we've got a lot of physios and fitness professionals who listen to this podcast, and I think there's definitely a role for all of us to play. Um, and, you know, from that, you know, Anthony and I talk about this a lot, but, you know, the emotional side of, um, you know, that support system of being in a gym and like whether it's, you know, CrossFit or yoga or Pilates or, you know, working with a PT, you know, the, the, um, the benefits of that from a physical, but from a psychological perspective are huge. And if we can, you know, support women to keep moving and keep exercising in ways that feel good for them, you know, that's really, really um, super important. Now, I know this person is out there and they're like, who the heck are these people? I can make it to the kitchen, get something to eat and make it to mm. the couch and turn on Netflix. And I have been there and I have been in that pain. And that's yeah. why I say start with eight to 10 minutes of something you like. And honestly, it could be sidestepping in front of the television, right? It doesn't have, not every, and also I've noticed because it's my jam to go to a gym, to go to a class, something like that, but it's not everybody's jam. And some people's jam, we just want you off the couch. We want, so go breathe in a regular chair if you're somebody who is always on the couch. We want you to put your spine in a different position. And I understand it hurts, but for eight to 10 minutes, we can try something a little different, right? And, 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 mm -hmm. and in the US one day, maybe we'll be able to go to gyms again. Uh, yeah, uh, look, thank you for saying that because I don't tend to see people at that end of the spectrum, but I'm right. sure because, hey, can I just ask, sorry, this is totally as an aside, but it sounds like you've, have you watched a lot of surgery? It sounds, or are you I, I have in my, um, in my practice, I'm able to um, go to surgery a lot. I like to, I like that aspect mm. of it. I also lecture at um, two big surgical conferences, usually at SLS every year, which is a surgical conference. And you get to see everything because they're general surgeons as well as gynecologists, as well as bariatrics as well. And so I've been with the robot. I've been with, you know, I haven't done surgery, but I have, I am able, I love that part of it. I've yeah, that's cool. Class. I used to love watching lots, watching surgery too. Yeah, so I'm like, when you were describing all these things, I was thinking, yeah. have you been watching videos? Are you hanging out with the surgeons and just like sticking your face in there and going, oh, look at that, look at that. Yeah, <laughs> actually they do. Do you see anything before they close? Do you see anything else? No. So the other thing with endometriosis, and, I, and I, Anthony said to me, what can we say to people? I encourage them to get involved in the groups that are out there. So in Australia, Endometriosis Australia runs a wonderful Facebook group in the United States and worldwide. There's Nancy's Nook for Endometriosis, but um, pages like Center for Endometriosis Care and a want obviously the Endometriosis Summit. We run forums so that patients are empowered with the knowledge that they can have. So if you're like, I can't get off the couch today, at least get into one of those groups and start to, to, to learn something. They're educational groups. They're not support groups because support groups are a good way to commiserate and you can do that on your own time. But the education groups are a good way to teach 
and to learn about endometriosis. And even just today, you talk about surgery, Nancy's Nook had a big fertility surgery on there today that I watched. Yeah, the Endometriosis Summit hosted a live ovarian endometrioma removal. And it was moderated and anything. And we put it, most of the endometriosis crowds put it out there for the patients because um, sometimes the doctors just don't know what's really out there and how to treat them, unfortunately. Wow, that's amazing that there's so many resources out there. And we'll um, definitely put these links in the show notes and the links to the, when's the summit coming out? So the endometriosis summit typically happens the first weekend in March. We will hold, uh, and we were live. So no kidding, we had 700 people over the weekend of February 29th and March 1st um, in New York. And then what happened <laughs> the next week? So I had people, so it, it was a little dicey. We, I believe the date is October 25th. Um, we're going to host the first Endometriosis Summit Reproductive Immunology Conference. Wow. I spent the day making the logo and, um, that is going to be for sure online. The, we believe that the endometriosis summit, which will happen the first weekend in March, that's our big bread and butter event. We believe mm -hmm. that'll be online too, because I can't imagine we pay for it ourselves. We don't accept any pharma funding. Um, yeah. We do have industry funding, but we don't accept for, and I can't imagine like shelling out, not knowing I and mean, that takes months usually i don't know what will happen with that but it makes it so that international people will be able to get to it and international people will be able to lecture at it because there are plenty of you have fantastic physio in australia and i can never have those um but i could have them lecture now because it's going to be all on online i just have to figure out how to do it yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. And, and that, this, that beautifully segues into our last, the last point that we wanted to bring up with you was really, you know, um, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on and one of the things obviously you're clearly passionate about is, is raising the profile of endo um, internationally. And so we encourage everyone to, to check out all the links that we're going to put in the show notes. Um, but do you have any sort of last thoughts, Sally, on what you'd like to share with our audience about really, you know, pushing, um, this conversation forward and moving endometriosis treatment um, and diagnosis and everything forward. Is there anything you want to sort of do a shout out to our audience to kind of spur them on? No person should miss out on school, career, social participation or parenthood because of pain and pelvic pain and painful periods and good help is out there. You just may need to use your feet to go get it. If your doctor isn't hearing you, find another doctor because there's no reason to just sit and suffer. And I think it's really important to realize you are in the driver's seat of your pain. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. You know, it's, um, it's so important to, to hear from people like you. Like, I'm sure you've forgotten more than I'll ever know about this topic. Um, you know, your, your experience just shows through. Um, so I've got the unenviable job of trying to summarize all the things that we've covered. It's like every sentence is like, oh, we could explore that more. Um, but we endometriosis. Need, we didn't even cover all the, we'll have to have a whole nother one on the associated pains with endometriosis. Cause there's like maybe six other things that always come with endometriosis. We didn't even get to. Uh, we'll yeah. get to it next time. 
you're right. I, I, we, we are happy to book you on again, and um, you know, we're going to have to have a part two. Um, so, what we've covered so far is that endometriosis is a condition. Uh, it's a, it's a condition of lesions. It's a disease of lesions uh, that implants itself in other tissue. It, it was thought to be the endometrial lining. Uh, depositing elsewhere in the body, but um, it doesn't seem to be the case. It's similar tissue, but not the same. It has its own hormonal uh, production. It uh, it connects its own blood supply. It connects its own nerve supply. Um, it can it has different appearances on the inside. So when you go look with a scope, it could be clear, blueberry, raspberry, brown, even black. Um, it can it can form around. Uh, you know, the heart, lungs, diaphragm, bowel, uh, organs. The only organ I think you said was the spleen is the only one that hasn't been found on so far, but all the others are in the literature. Um, even wrap around nerves and um, cause inflammatory cycles. It, it uh, you know, the average time to diagnosis is like eight years. So if you've had it for this, this chronic and persistent pain for a while, we're expecting... Uh, you know, central system changes, sensitization, uh, persistent chronic pain. Um, excision is, uh, is what should be the gold standard of treatment. The gold standard of treatment isn't there yet. Ablation only takes the top off of it. It doesn't take all the tissue out. So therefore the tissue under the ablation is still uh, connected to the system and producing its own hormonal supply. Hormonal uh, treatments such as uh, the oral contraceptive pill and other medications, it may be helpful for some people, but again, it's it's modulating the symptoms and not solving the problem. And the problem is, is that tissue is there, um, and then uh, it can cause all sorts of associated problems, uh, some of which we touched on, but we're going to go uh, hear from you some more, at least six different ones. Uh, but also things like, um, uh, you know, symptoms could be not just painful periods, uh, but feeling different at different times. Um, you can have uh, IBS-like symptoms, you said, um, you know, different pains, weird pains. You, you told us the story of the lady who had three different lung collapses and, and was given Advil as the, the medication that was offered. Uh, oh yeah, one Advil. Sorry, uh, yay. Um, it's going to help. Um, and uh, you know, there is lots of help out there. There's a very strong message of advocate for yourself, get involved. The medical education is um, is not up to speed. And I, you know, I always do know that it's difficult for doctors to to be up to up to speed on every topic, particularly the local doctor. So being able to advocate and and uh, get the resources that people like yourself and the organisations that you have mentioned throughout the the podcast uh, produce and get involved with those uh, resources and advocate for yourself. Know that there's help out there. Things that we can do as health and fitness professionals is number one, 
acknowledge the suffering that they're going through, the fact that uh, most of their medical experience to do with endometriosis will be um, a frustrating one where they're likely to be dismissed and not believed or, uh, you know, have some sort of other reason ascribed to it. Um, and and that's traumatic and frustrating and, and angry. You spoke about uh, at the conference, there was a lot of anger that came out um, in the open mic and, and being able to take that conversation and, and make resolutions uh, was really helpful then. Uh, and other things that we can do are our... You know, what we do really well as health and fitness professionals with pain is help people move, uh, even if it's eight to 10 minutes of just simple movement, simple exercise in front of the TV. Um, it is difficult, it is hard, um, but there's lots of caring and supportive health and fitness professionals out there for that. Um, there is some of the manual things that we can do. There is um, other things that we can do in terms of desensitization of the system and helping people manage their persistent pain symptoms, the upregulation of the system. Even breathing um, is, is a great thing. And whatever they love to do, we should um, help them find those things and support them uh, instead of just a typical walk, ride, swim or Pilates yoga, whichever one it is. Um, there, there are lots of options that we should help empower people to do. And to move the conversation forward is to, to recognize that the system sucks right now. And we all have a part to play in raising the awareness and to help educate each other and, um, and others be it the medical profession, other physical therapists, other health and fitness professionals, and other people in general who are suffering through this, um, and to, to learn more about those associated uh, conditions um, with endometriosis. How did I go? You did awesome. You now know more than I want to say 80% of the people working in gynecology. Maybe more. I, th I think Heather Padone of the Center for Endometriosis Care would now say you know more than 98% of the people working in gynecology in the United States. But I can't assume she would say that. I would oh say Oh, my that. goodness. That's scary. Yeah, you did great. That's really scary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But look I saw you look... Um, this is part of what makes the change. So you guys are making the change. That's what matters. Yeah. And if we have been... to drive it from the ground up, you know, um, then so be it. And, and I love that you, you know, really pushed the fact that women are going to need to advocate and, and educate themselves and, and probably push for the change. Um, seek out the people who know what they're doing. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I am the ground up. I put up uh, one Instagram post and I had a free room for 98 people. And in a day I sold that out and booked a hotel conference room and we sold out 350 in just about five weeks, right? That was the first year of the endometriosis wow. summit. But the second year we sold out 700. We knew what was coming and, and we would have gone, we were ready to go to Tacoma into a, a place that seated um, 600 each day. So we could have had 1,200, right? But, and that's the ground up. We're crazy, as people with endometriosis, we're craving to be led from the ground up. We're done with top down. Yeah. So I applaud somebody like the two of you that are ready to move it from the ground up. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I just want to say a massive thank you, Sally. Um, I personally have learned so much from this. It's like an area that I know like a little bit about, um, but I feel that, you know, move, like I'm probably going to see more and more clients with endo now that I'm working a lot more in pelvic health and less in the sort of obstetric kind of area. Um, so I, I really needed, needed this and I think it's been uh, so valuable and I look forward to checking out the summits and things as they come out. But Thank you so much for your time and sharing your, your experience, your knowledge. Um, it's been incredible. And we look forward to having you back on the, on the podcast to talk about those other conditions. Um, oh, I think that'll I, be amazing. And thank you also for your passion. You're such a, um, you're clearly very passionate about this topic, but it makes it very easy for us to interview you <laughs> as well. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I love how I just invited myself while the dogs were barking, like you didn't notice. Um, but yes, it was awesome to be here. And I've learned so much from the two of you and from actually listening to the um, program. So I'm excited that I was able to share something for it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Sally. And um, for all of you who are listening, please uh, share the episode. There's so much great information in it. Yeah, share, share. Like, subscribe, um, contact Sally. All her details will be there. She's given us her details to share with you. Um, and even if it's just to say thank you for, for what she's done for endometriosis, that'd be, um, that'd be really great. Otherwise, uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.